The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm not really sure uh, for most of us what the last couple of weeks have been like. I know that a couple of weeks ago, many of us with kids, they had spring break, and that can be good or bad depending on what you do or don't do. But for our family, um, the last month or so, the last two months really, have been just incredibly busy, just sort of like a fog. Um, starting back at, at the end of December, because this last week uh, we moved. So, and some of you know, just all of the craziness and um, just despair, really, that comes with moving houses. Um, we had lived for a year and a half um, downtown uh, in, a, in a house just around the corner from Ecclesia's downtown campus. And so uh, last week we moved from that campus uh, near downtown out to uh, near Sherland in Stafford. Because my wife works out toward that way. She works on the west side and my daughter goes to school out there and my youngest daughter will be going to school out there next year. And they were having a 90 minute commute every day to get home. And so that changed from 90 minutes to 15 minutes, which they absolutely love uh, and have no concern for me that my commute went from two minutes to 42 minutes. So we decided to move all the way out there. And that's just been really eye-opening for me because some of you know the experience of having to buy a new house and searching for a new house. Um, Rusty Gates, who worships here, um, was our realtor and he did a great job showing us around everywhere in the city that we wanted to look and he knew exactly what we were looking for. We ended up buying a house that didn't have hardly any of the things that we were looking for. (laughs) But you know that experience when you're seeing lots of different houses and you notice everything about every house that you go in like, you know, like which houses have floors that are uneven, which apparently in Houston is every house. And like which house smells, like which ones had cats in them because cats are evil and from the devil. <laughs> and we saw this one house not far from here. And as we're walking in, there's a pot right at the front door just with all of these um, cigarette butts. And I know immediately we're never buying this house as you'll probably be condemned. Let's just burn it down. But we're really nice people. And so we go look at it anyway and come out and say, we'll never buy that place again. Like I just start itching and sneezing, like just in the neighborhood of that house now. Um, But what I noticed is last week when we were moving and we were leaving the place where we had been, I noticed all of the things about that place that I hadn't noticed before. So there was this gate and right on the other side of the gate as you're pulling out, there are these three houses that are just dilapidated, just falling apart. And it dawned on me, like if I were looking to buy this house, like I would, I would have noticed that and probably had some questions about what does that mean for property values? Um, we have two daughters. What does that mean for well, safety? My, my wife's second cousin, who's 19, lives with us, and she goes and comes at all hours. And what would that mean for her? And where's she going to park her car? And then I thought about all the things in the house where we were that I knew were the case, but I, I just didn't care all that much. Like We never really had all of the hot water that we wanted to have, and the dishwasher was really loud. 
And we had this great view as this three-story house and the living room was on the second floor and you had this great view of downtown. But to see that great view, um, you had to look past like what was immediately in front of it, which was this lumber yard. And like they would be out there at all hours of the morning, like cutting lumber. And there was a big grassy area on Saturday morning. Somebody would be out there, not like in a riding lawnmower, like a push lawnmower, cutting all of this grass like at six o'clock in the morning. And I'm an early riser. I'm almost always up by 5.20, 5.30, but I still don't want to hear that at six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And so you start to look at all of these other houses. And now that we're in our new house, I can tell you absolutely everything down to you know, the T of things that I don't like and that we're going to have to change about that house um, if we're going to stay there and be somewhere in the neighborhood of content. But that whole process just made me mindful of all of the things in life that just in the busyness, in the day-to-day, taking kids here and there, trying to get to work, fighting traffic, bills to pay, all of the things that just go by in life that you just don't notice. And there's a lot about our lives that you just don't notice. Or maybe at one point you did notice and you don't notice anymore. And like that's one thing when you're talking about like the undulations on a floor. It's really different when you're talking about people. So years ago when our family was living in Central Texas um, and I was a senior pastor for a church there, I I gave a lesson just about fathers and sons and the dynamics of the relationships that adult dads and their sons have. And there was a guy in the church there, his name was Daryl. And and Daryl's one of these people that you really, you always saw, you always heard him before you saw him. And part of the reason was that he rode this incredibly huge Harley Davidson that you could hear somewhere, anywhere between like four blocks and four miles away, just coming your direction. You'd always hear it. And he was this big guy who wore this leather vest all the time and his hair was long, had a bandana all the time, had this growly, long beard and this voice that just boomed everywhere. And he was the kind of guy, like if you didn't know him better, you would think that he was going out of his way to offend people during every interaction that anyone ever had with him. And no matter what the church event was that we were having, no matter what it was, Like he would always bring his own six pack of beer and it was always Bud Light. So nobody else wanted any anyway, (laughs) but that was just him. And so I I got done with our worship time that morning and he comes to me after and has just like a little glint of a tear in his eyes. And he goes, you know, Sean, Um, I told you that I work for my dad, right? Oh, yeah, I remember you saying that. So what I probably never told you was that 15 years ago, um, my brother died. And then he said, you know what? All this time that I've worked for my dad, we've built this million dollar construction company 
and I run the company. He doesn't do very much. I take care of him and all of the family, and I'm the one that's always running around, and we've put all of this together, and it's been me doing all of this over and over again through the years. And he said, you know what? The only thing my dad can ever talk about is my brother. Have you ever felt that way? That you, that you were just unnoticed. That you could just disappear. And, and nobody would know that you had ever been there. Or that even when you show up someplace, that no one, no one cares that you're there in the first place. That you're just part of the scenery and life goes on and people pass by. And it's like you're not even there. Richard Rohr says that we begin to understand ourselves. That we first begin to understand ourselves in the eyes of others. Particularly, Rohr says, in the eyes of our mothers. That those people who from our very first days look at us. And you know what we see? We see what they see. And there's probably not anything more life-draining than to spend your days and nights to go through your life and feel like you are just unnoticed. So if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in the season of Lent. And Lent commemorates the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert after his baptism, after God names his identity, where Jesus goes into the desert to do battle with Satan. And so leading up to Easter, what Christians have done through the centuries is that we've joined in solidarity with Jesus as he goes into the desert. And there might not be a place that feels more barren and dry and desolate to us as human beings than when we are having a season or a lifetime of feeling unnoticed and unwanted, when there is relational tension. And so I want to share with you this morning one of my favorite desert stories. And, and this story starts in Genesis 12. When God comes to a man named Abram and God tells Abram, says, I, I've seen what you've done. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you a promise that you are going to have descendants and your descendants are going to be so many. They're going to be like the sand on the seashore. That's how many descendants that you're going to have. And I'm going to bless you and your people will always, always, always be my people. And I will bless the world through your family. But there's a problem. Abram doesn't have any children with his wife, Sarai, and they are not getting any younger. And so as, the time, as time goes on, they decide, hey, um, we're going to do this. God's made this promise. We're going to live our lives and let God keep this promise. But the years tick on and tick on and tick on and tick on. And as you've noticed, um, no one's life ever keeps going and they get younger. And so finally... Sarai comes to her husband, Abram, 
and she has a proposal for him. And so this is what she says. She says, you can see that the eternal one has still not allowed me to have any children. And he's thinking, yes, I noticed. That's not the kind of thing that would slip by me, believe me. Why don't you sleep with my servant girl? Maybe I could use her as a surrogate and have a child through her. So Sarai comes to Abram and she goes, um, why don't you sleep with my servant girl? Which probably sounds weird to you. And it should. But remember, th this was, this was 5,000 years ago. And this was common. Because we're not talking about what many of us go through when we want to have children, when we want to have a child and, and we can't and we go to doctors and we try to figure out what's happening and what we can do about it. We take proactive steps. Like this is a time that when you didn't have children, that meant that you were not blessed by God. And maybe even that you were cursed by God, that children, fertility was a sign that you walked with God. But that's not the only problem here. The problem is also that Sarai has this girl, this servant girl, and she probably was just a girl, 14 or 15 years old. And Sarai says to Abram, why don't I give her to you? She's just a servant girl. At least that's what she is to Sarai. She doesn't even have a name to Sarai. So I know a lot of you read a lot of fiction and some of you write. And so just one of those little insights into the literary world, when you're reading something and the author doesn't give a character a name, that means the author doesn't want you to care about that character. And that's who this servant girl is. She doesn't have a name for Sarai. She's unnoticed and she's not worth noticing. My great-great-grandparents were slaves in Alabama. And I can't tell you a whole lot about them. And my mother and my father can't tell you a whole lot about them. Because for the rest of the world, they are slaves. They're just unnoticed. Most of us at some point in life had to take an American history class. How many slaves can you name? The only slaves that even history buffs can name are slaves that fought against slavery. That's who this is, at least for Sarai. She's not concerned about this servant girl. She's only concerned about her. And she goes to Abram and says, I've got this servant girl. I've got this slave. 
And you can do with her anything you want. The story picks up in Genesis 16. Abram listened to Sarai and agreed to follow her plan. After they had lived 10 years in Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took her servant girl, Hagar. Well, now she has a name, but not to Sarai, but just to the teller of the story, just to the narrator. Took her servant girl, Hagar, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. Now, now this story will only make sense if you know a little bit about Abram and Sarai before this point. Because Abram was pretty nomadic. And so he just kind of wandered around, but God kept his promise. And so what happens is there's a point in their story where Abram and Sarai end up in Egypt. And before they get to Egypt, Abram brings Sarai over and he says, listen, um, we're about to go into Egypt and things are a little bit different there. So when we go, what I want you to do is tell them you're my sister and not my wife. Because apparently, and maybe when she was younger and maybe even still now, Sarah's pretty good looking. And Abram has this concern that when we get there, Pharaoh's gonna want you to join his harem. And so if you're married and he wants you to join his harem, then he will kill me so you can be in his harem. But if we go and you just tell them that you're my sister, you can still join his harem and he won't kill me. Now that might sound weird to you, and it should, but it's true. Sarai is his sister, his half-sister. I don't know about you, but I have a half-sister. We are never getting married. So they're living in Egypt, and God does what God promised. And Abram's wealth, his property, his possessions, um, his slaves, they grow and grow and grow, and Abram is incredibly blessed while living in Egypt. And at the same time, Pharaoh sees the exact opposite, that his wealth is shrinking and everything that he touches withers and dies. And finally, he learns that the reason that God is blessing Abram is because God has made this promise to Abram. And the reason that he's not being blessed, the reason that everything's turned bad for him is that he has this married woman in his harem. And so he goes back to Abram. He goes, this isn't your sister. Like, well, she is, but she's also your wife. Why didn't you tell me? Because I've had this woman in my harem, things aren't going well for me. So take her back and get out of here. And so all of these Egyptians see this happening and they say, everything that Abram touches turns to gold, it's blessed. And the economy here is headed down. And better to be a slave with Abram than to stay in Egypt. It's foreshadowing of the exact same thing that happens later in the Exodus. And so that's how Hagar ends up living with Abram and Sarai. 
And so Sarai says, she's just a slave. Do with her as you want. And after 10 years of back and forth and waiting and waiting and waiting, Abram finally does. And the story picks up in Genesis 16. So Abram slept with Hagar. And this is one of those times where I want to remind people that the Bible, the Bible is closer to Game of Thrones than it is Veggie Tales. So I'm not making up this story. It's just there. It's in your, you should really read your Bible sometime. Like while you're waiting for Game of Thrones to come back in April, just read your Bible. It was not long before she became pregnant, before she conceived. But as soon as she knew she was pregnant with Abram's child, Hagar's attitude changed and she became haughty towards Sarai. Sarai would not tolerate her servant looking down on her. So she approached Abram again. This is all your fault. Do you not remember that conversation from 10 years ago? And what she's saying is like the, 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 the fact that she's pregnant isn't your fault. I, I remember how all that happened. What she's saying is, Abram, um, you're supposed to be in charge around here. And the way that Hagar is now treating me, the way things have unfolded, you're responsible for that. She goes, I allowed my servant girl, she still doesn't have a name in Sarah's mind, to be intimate with you. And as soon as she saw she was pregnant with your child, she started behaving arrogantly and disrespectfully toward me. I have done nothing to deserve this. Nothing may be a little strong. Let the eternal one judge who is who here is, who is in the wrong here, you or me? And Abram says, sir, I look, she's still your servant, girl. Do whatever you want with her. She's under your control. So Sarai clamped down on Hagar severely, and Hagar ran away. The special messenger of the eternal one found Hagar alone by a spring of water out in the desert. So Sarai clamps down on Hagar, and she runs. She flees to the desert. Like, what's Hagar's plan here? She's out in the middle of the desert, alone. The, the scriptures tell us nothing about her being prepared with any provisions. And she's pregnant. And maybe you know exactly what that feels like. Or you don't know, you don't know what's coming next. But you know, I'm not sticking around here for this anymore. And maybe she thought that she was closer to Egypt than she actually was. And that she could just get out there and she would find her way back home. And maybe some friends or some family would take her in. Or maybe she thought, hey, when I, once I get out in the desert, you never know. There are going to be other people who are nomadic who are just traveling around and I'll just fall in with them. But I'm not staying around here anymore. But it doesn't take long in the desert when you haven't planned to be in the desert to know that you can't survive in the desert alone. So a special messenger comes to Hagar. And this is what the messenger says. It says, Hagar, go back to your mistress and change your attitude. Be respectful and listen to her instructions. 
you're pregnant and you need to go home. Trust me, I'm going to give you many children and many descendants, so many you won't be able to count them. As a result of this encounter, Hagar decided to give the eternal one who had spoken to her a special name because he had seen her in her misery. I'm going to call you the God of seeing because in this place, I have seen the one who watches over me. So Hagar has this encounter with a special messenger. And she names this messenger, which is absolutely remarkable. Because Hagar is from Egypt. Yahweh's not her God. This is just a messenger who comes to her and gives her instructions. And so she packs up whatever she has and she makes her way back home. And once, she, once she's there, she gives birth to a son. And she names him Ishmael, just like the special messenger had told her to. And he grows up with her and with his father. And God comes and visits Abram and Sarai, and he says, you really do need to trust me on this one. I've got it covered. And he renames them. Abram becomes Abraham, and Sarai becomes Sarah. And then they finally conceive and have a son. And they name him Isaac, just as God told them to. And then Genesis 21 picks up the story. Time went on, and Isaac grew and was weaned from his mother, which in the ancient world would have been about three years old. Abraham prepared a special feast in Isaac's honor to celebrate the day he was weaned. But a damper was put on the day when Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian girl bore for Abraham laughing and teasing her son. She became jealous and demanded of Abraham, throw this slave woman and her son out right now. The son of this slave is not going to share the inheritance along with my son, Isaac, if I have anything to do with it. So Abraham got up early in the morning, took bread and a container of water, and gave them to Hagar. He placed them on her shoulder, gave her the child, his firstborn, and sent her away. She left and wandered in the wilderness near Beersheba. And I don't want us to pass over this too quickly. Because Christianity has had such a close alignment with Judaism through the years and not so much with Islam through the years, we miss something really important in this story. Ishmael is Abraham's son. And he sends him away. I was in student ministry for over a dozen years. Have you seen parents who send away their first child to college? Like some of them nearly break down. I am three and a half years away from my own breakdown. 
and we break down knowing that we're going to see them again on parents' weekend or when they have to come home to do their laundry. Abraham is sending away his firstborn son forever. And Genesis doesn't want us to miss this, that Abraham comes to Hagar and gives her his son. Like all of this time, and Ishmael is somewhere between 12 and 16 now. He hasn't been living with Hagar. He's been living with Abraham. Abraham's the one who trained him to lead the family, to take over the family business when he got too old or when he died, because that's what firstborn sons did. Ishmael's been sitting around the campfire at night with Abraham, hearing stories about the nomadic years and about how God has blessed him. And now he sends him away. And for Hagar, this is the second trip into the desert. And while she left the first time because of Sarai's treatment, she goes the second time because of Sarah's instruction. And there she is again, back in the desert. And Abraham gives them some bread and some water. But the water runs out. The story picks up later. When the water in the container was all gone, in desperation, she left the child under the shade of one of the bushes. Then she walked off and sat down opposite him, about a bow shot away. Hagar says, I can't bear to watch my child die. As she sat there, she cried loudly. God heard the voice of young Ishmael, and a messenger of God called out to Hagar from heaven. Why are you so upset, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the voice of young Ishmael. Come now, lift him up, and take him by the hand. I have plans to make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes. She looked up from her grief and saw a well of water not far away. She went over to it, filled the container she carried with water, and gave the young man a drink. God watched over him the rest of his life. Ishmael grew up, lived in the wilderness, and became an expert archer. Well, this is a story about two trips to the desert. And I know for us, as uh, discomforting as it might sound, as much as we push against the idea of going in the desert, of being in the desert, of being in dry and barren and desolate places, here we see that it's in the desert that God does some of his most amazing work. Because one of the things that's pretty clear about this story is that in the desert you are seen. That Hagar goes out into the desert that first time, and, and, and Sarah doesn't see her. 
She's just a slave girl to her. She's a tool. But in the desert, God sees her. God notices. And I don't know about the daily ins and outs of your life. Whatever pressures you have in your marriage or with your children and your business, your work life, how difficult it is to raise little children or to care for aging parents. But maybe one of the more beautiful things about God is that wherever you are, that God notices. All those little things that you feel like just go unseen, the things that you do for people that you really wish, just once it would be nice if they said thank you, <laughs> that God sees you and God notices. And out in the desert, Hagar discovers a God who is not her own, and he makes her a promise, and he sends her on her way, he gives her instructions, but the thing that is the most meaningful to her is he is the God who watches over her. And I find it interesting that my atheist friends, one of the reasons that some of them give for not believing in God is that they say, you know, if there really is a God, there's so much going on in the world. There's war and hunger. And with so much going on, why would God care about me? And the truth is, I can't tell you why God cares about the mundacities of my life or your life. I just know that God does, that he sees. He sees you in this moment today, wherever you are. And the other side of that is that in the desert you can see. That Hagar finds herself out in the desert, only this time she's not pregnant, but she's got a whole other person to take care of. And she gets to the point where she's like, I can't watch my child die. And Genesis tells us the messenger comes to her and opens up her eyes and says, I don't know that you noticed, but there's a well right over there. And maybe this Lenten season, you are in a place of such tremendous heartache and heartbreak and grief that you can't see the resources that God's already provided for you. That, that maybe you're like Daryl's dad, who is so blinded by his own grief that you fail to notice the beauty and the blessing that's right in front of you. So what is that for you? Now, I know for, for many of us with really young kids, like, it is so tiring. And it is so hard. And there are just constant needs. And sometimes 
you just want to be anywhere on the planet than with these children. And then those of us who are older will come to you and say something really crazy that doesn't make any sense but is really true and look at you and say, yeah, but you're in the middle of the good old days. What's right there, right now, that God's given you to see? And in the desert, you can thrive. And that doesn't sound like good news. But what if the season of life you're in right now isn't a, isn't a chapter, but it's a book? That that's exactly where you're supposed to be. And what God is doing in your life is guiding you into the thing, into the place to become the person that you were meant to be. When the messenger comes to Hagar, she says, your son, he's going to be a wild kind of man. And a wild man needs the desert. What is it? Not in the future. Not next year or five years or ten years from now. But right now. That God wants you to do with what God's given you. To learn to thrive right here, right now. And what I love about this story is that all four characters are in a crisis. Abraham and Sarah are in a crisis. Hagar's in a crisis. Ishmael's in a crisis. And they're all in a crisis because somewhere along the way, all the adults in the story fail to believe the exact same thing. And what they fail to believe, what we often fail to believe, is that God is with them. That God has come and made a promise. And that God will be with you in the promise. So what might your life look like if you were to leave here today in your relationships, in your work, whatever it is, fully knowing and embracing that God was with you. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is from Corinthians when the Apostle Paul says that all of God's promises are answered yes in Christ Jesus. Right now today, in whatever season you're in, you can do what Abraham and Sarah failed to do. What they failed to do that caused a cascade of trouble and violence and despair that even continues today is simply to believe that God is with you and God's promises are always answered. Yes. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, thank you that you are a yes God and that you have come to us and made promises that you will be with us. That as Jesus departs this earth, that he promises his disciples that he will be with us to the end of the age. 
and that you have come to redeem us and save us, and that we are living creatures, and because of you, we will never stop living. Help us to embrace the fact, God, that you are with us in all we say and do. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.